This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Welcome to The Final Curtain. Ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. I'm Shirley Welsh, host of Death Cafe Dunedin, where people meet in all sorts of places to drink tea, eat cake and discuss death. In this program, we break the taboo around talking about death and hear firsthand from New Zealanders about their experiences and their perspectives. Today I'm talking to Mark. Mark lived in Japan for 20 years. After his father's death, he came to realise that New Zealanders have a lot to learn from Japanese death rituals. Mark, you told me that following your dad's wishes as to what was to be done after he died was the worst mistake of your life. Yes. What were his wishes? Uh, his wishes were that he be disposed of as cheaply and as conveniently as possible after dying. And uh, it seemed fine at the time because it was in... His nature is a very pragmatic sort of person, and so he just thought, I, I would have believed that by saving money and minimising fuss, uh, people that had to deal with the process of his death would benefit. But that's not how it turned out to be, emotionally anyway. Right. So why was that um, the worst mistake? Oh, because uh, dead, well... Dead is dead, you're left with a body. Uh, what happens after that, who, who quite knows? But uh, there are people left behind that have to deal with the issue of disposing of the body and the funeral preparations and all that sort of thing. And those people have a process to go through, which <laughs> was kind of denied to them, that is myself and my mum, by d- following Dad's wishes to the to the letter, which was just to be cremated and that was kind of the end of it as far as he was concerned so now your mum and dad had been married for 60 years close to 60 years yes and so how did she deal with this well quick disposal yes I I suppose you know having been married for 60 years you become part of part of the other don't you each partner becomes something of the other person so I would imagine that for mum to hear dad express those wishes, this, this was long, long, long before he actually died. You know, he prepaid a cremation, I don't know, 20 or 25 years for both himself and mum, uh, you know, prior to the event. So she wouldn't have thought there was anything unusual for dad to come across with these wishes, and she probably would have done the same. Uh, so nothing strange until after the event. And then I realised that there was something sorely missing in what Dad had wanted, and that was to take in the emotional component of what a death brings about. How would you have felt if if you'd actually gone against his wishes and done what was right for you and your mum? Yeah. um, I wouldn't have felt bad about that, but, you know, I'm also a product of my parents, so... I also exhibit that degree of pragmatism maybe to a greater extent than what my mum and dad ever did. So if I'd gone against his wishes, it probably wouldn't have worried me, but 
just to follow that path that he had requested was also an easy option for me. I mean, so what could be what could be faster and more convenient than straight to the crim, um, pay whatever bills needed to be paid, and over and done with? And on the face of things, what, what an easy solution for a dead body. But you know, like I said, there's an emotional component to it, and he didn't consider that at all. And that was in his nature. Not that he wasn't, uh, uh, not that he lacked emotion, but this was just him. And I think there are a lot of people like him. And, you know, he he just thought, oh, well, it's done and dusted. Let's get it over with as, as quickly as possible. And then people can carry on with their lives. And I can understand his thinking and believing that. But I also understand the loss that uh, I felt and my mum felt because we didn't go the whole hog. Now, having lived in Japan, you were exposed to very different death rituals. Tell yes. us a bit about those. Yeah, the Japanese have got a much better way than I think Western communities have of dealing with death. Uh, we seem to want to divorce ourselves from from the problem of the dead person as quickly as possible. So we've got this formal ritual, which the Japanese have as well, that I think separates us from the deceased as the living separates the living from the deceased as quickly as they possibly can and the, the Japanese don't do that so the uh, the deceased person is normally kept in the family home where there's some sort of wake people come and visit uh, say hello to the living say hello to the dead uh, then there is a formal process, you know, that there's normally a cremation in Japan because there's just not enough physical space in the country to bury people. So most people are cremated. And uh, the body will be moved from the home to a funeral parlour, I suppose you'd call it, or crematoria, where the body's uh, washed by the family and friends. And then, uh, you know, it goes into a you know a furnace and it's burnt, but but the body comes out and normally the ashes are still hot and those bones, especially the long bones that haven't been destroyed by the fire, are then picked out by family members using specially blessed chopsticks and put into a box. So even soon after the cremation, people are still involved with with the process. And then uh, there's a bit of a wake at the family home and people get together and the head of the table is taken up by a photograph of the deceased person and people eat, drink, and normally it's a reasonably jolly sort of time. Because unless it's a tragic accident, the death's not unexpected. You know, people in Japan live to a ripe old age and death's normally via cancer, but when you're 85 or 90, with cancer, it doesn't really matter anymore, does it? You're going to die at some point um, if you're that age. And then they have a formalised ritual whereby, and it's all it's all very uh, it's it's laid out so that from the date of death they will have a memorials a type of memorial service at different years, depending on their calculation post-death so the first memorial will be a year post-death 
and then maybe the second year and then the third year and then the seventh year and then the eleventh year and then the twelfth year and six months and on it goes forever forever and in theory people that remember the deceased person will keep on memorializing their death forever and of course it won't happen forever because those people will also die but this is never forgotten and the memorial is always a get together at the family home of the deceased or a proxy and they'll eat and get drunk and have a good time and the dead person's almost forgotten it just seems that at the end after a number of years just a good reason for family and friends to get together and be friends together so the dead person you know and but the photo of the deceased is always there at the head of the table and so that person's never forgotten, which is something that we try to do, I think, as quickly as possible in some ways in Western society, just put ourselves quite distant from the deceased person as quickly as we possibly can. So what sort of rituals would you have liked to have observed when your dad died, if you'd had your way? Mm. Well, in, hind- in hindsight, it's wonderful, but I-, I think just you know getting together with the people that my parents knew and I don't know just doing what Kiwis do have a few drinks and and something to eat and a bit of a talk anything would have been better than nothing and we did nothing and that was a big mistake Did other members of your family share your sentiments about the need for rituals for closure? Yeah when when my mum was you know before she uh, became severely demented um, yeah, she also said that it would have been nice to have done something a little bit more than what Dad had uh, asked for. So, yeah, but, you know, it's it's a bit of a pressure situation too, isn't it, Shirley, because, you know, somebody somebody dies, and, and Dad's death was, well, not unexpected, but it came as a shock, as, as most of them do, and so you're under the pump to get things organised, get things done and try and move on because life carries on, which is just as well. But we didn't really think too much about the long-term consequences of not following Dad's wishes. We just followed his wishes because it seemed to us like an easy way out as well. And that's because, you know, as a family, we're pretty pragmatic people and um, just get things done and move on. So describe your dad a little to me. Yes, uh, he was he was very tall, tall, tall Dutchman, um, a, a fighter and and a, and a battler. He he spent uh, a lot of his time as a youth in amongst the war in Indonesia, where he was born. Even though he was Dutch, he was born in Indonesia. Uh, he spent time as a youth in Japanese prisoner of war camp where I think it was three years he spent there but I don't know too much about that um, I suppose fighting to be alive and stay alive him and his whole family were interned and uh, so you know he never he never um, gave up the battle and you know it was you know, for, often for him, he he would describe things as as a fight or a battle with in his working situation. It might just be a trouble or a difficulty to people 
otherwise. But for him, it was a battle that had to be overcome. And this is the way he viewed life because of how he had viewed his life and seen his life as a kid in Indonesia. He, you know, he was married to, uh, he was um, a child of, of very wealthy parents, but that didn't stop him being banged up in a prisoner of war camp when that time came in Indonesia. But he survived that back to Holland and then immigrated to uh, New Zealand. So, yeah, I suppose, never scared to take a risk. It encouraged me to take risks and see what would come of them and not scared of anything. And how did he deal with your Japanese friends given that he had been in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Yeah, that was interesting. That's something that I didn't actually think about too much. He hated the Japanese, and he hated the Koreans even worse because uh, uh, they were aligned with Japanese in the prisoner of war camps, and he said the Korean treatment of the detainees was worse than what the Japanese was, but uh, in general, he hated them. But like I said, he was a practical sort of person, and it wouldn't stop him buying a Japanese car or using a Panasonic microwave. So he was smart in that respect. Uh, he showed the friends that I was, uh, that he met of mine that came from, that went from uh, Japan to New Zealand. He was, a comp- he was the perfect host and he was doing it for, for my benefit. And uh, I think what his true feelings were, he never expressed to me, but you know, in, like I said, in hindsight, uh, hmm, he's probably a little wary of them being in the house actually. And I can say that because for, I think it was their 25th wedding anniversary, I shouted mum and dad a trip to Japan for a holiday, thinking they'd have a good time. My father didn't have a good time at all. He holed himself up in my apartment for the majority of the time that he was there, feigning illness, but in fact he was scared stiff that some Japanese was going to come out from behind a corner somewhere and take his head off with a sword. So... I don't think he ever lost their fear of them. But as a, as a kid and growing up, you don't ask those sorts of questions. And then by the time, you know, you're old enough to get an appreciation of how he must have felt as a kid, he's dead. So I can't ask those questions anymore. Tell us about his death. Oh. Uh, I, I came home from Japan mm, nine years ago. June 2011 and uh, I was having a small house built for myself next to mum and dad's and I thought oh, it would be nice I just live there out of their way but close enough to be useful and uh, I got back from Japan and that house wasn't completed so I lived with my parents in their house and I thought I did a little bit of checking on dates before you called Shirley just to make sure I was right about things and it was actually in July of that year, so maybe a month or so after I moved back, that uh, my mum woke me up in the middle of the night and said that something was wrong with Dad. And I had a look and I knew it was a stroke. So we got him into hospital and they said that you know, he didn't die from the stroke. If, if he was to do some intensive physiotherapy and blah, blah, this and blah, blah, that, he might be able to walk again. It wasn't, the deficit wasn't bad, but it was noticeable, and not only physical, but also his emotional state. And he didn't want to put the effort into any sort of rehabilitation whatsoever. 
and so he made a conscious decision to just keep himself comfortable, take whatever he needed to 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 uh, alleviate any pain, a bit of water, and so he went into palliative care after leaving hospital, and he never left that, and he died um, a couple of weeks later. Describe the day of his death. Uh, yeah, that, that's easy because we had about mm, 20 centimetres of snow in Christchurch. Uh, we got a phone call maybe four or five in the morning to say that he'd died. And we looked out the window to see all the snow and we couldn't get out to see him. Nobody could move anywhere. So it wasn't until about 10 o'clock in the morning when the snow had melted and we got to the to the to the rest home where dad had died and i've seen a few dead people in my time but you know you only get to see your parents dead once don't you and we both went to his room and saw him there and you know business has to carry on so mum stayed in his room with uh, a nurse and i went with the boss lady to do the paperwork and I'm in the boss lady's office doing the paperwork and then I hear somebody yell out that they need some help and I knew it was from mum's room, I don't know why. So or mum's, uh, we, uh, the room where dad was and mum was watching. And I, so we rushed there and here's mum passed out on the floor next to dad and they all thought that she'd had a stroke too but she just fainted. So we managed to get mum... Uh, we sort of revived her. And so at the same time that the hearse pulled up to take Dad's body away, an ambulance pulled up to take Mum away to hospital, and here I am, ankle deep in snow, wondering which vehicle I follow. And in the end, I went with the ambulance because I couldn't do much for my father. So that was the day of you know, his death. And stayed all day in hospital. She hadn't had a stroke, luckily. She just must have just been shocked. And, yeah, that was that. My sister turned up later on in the afternoon, expecting to, you know, me to pick her up from the airport. I said, oh, you can come to A&E at Christchurch Hospital because that's where we are. Did you continue living in your parents' home after your dad died? Yes, uh, I, I did. Um, I've got a cat, and he's still around. He's 20 years old now, but he's still pretty fit, so I had to come home and look after Tom and mum was going to come home too so she spent a couple or three nights in hospital and they got her up and running again and mum came home so uh, I couldn't just couldn't just leave her and besides that house still wasn't finished so we just stayed in, stayed in the same house and tried to carry on and what happened once your mum went into rest home care? Did you remain in the house then? Yeah, I've remained in that house and um, yeah, I'm still here now. How did you deal with being surrounded by all your, their goods and your childhood memories? Oh, well, it's, it's interesting because I'm, I'm a great declutterer so I sort of thought, well, you know, Dad's gone. I can start to get rid of anything to do with him, not in a mean sort of way, but I thought, you know, if it's of no use to me and it won't be of any use to him, what's the point of having it? So 
you know, I get the yellow bin and the and the red bin out, and I sort of start to go through the stuff, and I realised that the stuff that I was going through, I also had some investment in because as a kid, if there were tools, I would have touched them, I would have used them. The last person to have touched them and used them would have been my father. And I thought, hmm, this isn't going to be as easy as I thought. So I kind of stopped. And it's been a process, the decluttering process has been one that's taken a long, long time because it's usually emotional. Uh, Because once it's gone, it's gone. And you can't get it back. And so I've about the most I could, and I've done most of it now, and the, the emotion has sort of gone from it to a certain extent, but the most I could handle would be about one hour, and then I just couldn't take any more. But I knew at some point it has to be done because either you do it, and you do it selectively and carefully, and try and ensure that whatever you're disposing of goes to a good home, or has a good outcome, or somebody's going to come in after you with a skip and chuck it all in the skip, and it all goes to waste. So you've got a choice there. And it was one of these processes that I didn't want to do under duress when I'm actually cleaning up my own life because I've got a plan for my future as well and think I've got to get this done in two weeks so that I can get out of the country or whatever it is that I want to do. So I thought, oh, well, I can take my time doing it and at least it's done with some thought, but it's not an easy thing to do. So did sifting through your parents' things and getting rid of stuff become something of a ritual to say goodbye to them for you? Uh, I, I don't know if it was a ritual so much as I'm thinking towards the future. I, I thought it's better that I take care of these things that I don't need or won't need in a dignified sort of manner so that they go to a good home or are disposed of in a positive sort of way by me over a period of time rather than somebody coming in with a skip should I drop dead and just load it all into a skip and dump it as rubbish because that's really the alternative and that's what happens in a lot of cases with death isn't it people people leave some of these important actions until the last minute or until it's too late and then those cleaning up afterwards have no choice because they've got a life to get on with as well except just cleaning the whole place out wholesale so it wasn't it wasn't so much a ritual as just being trying to be sensible about how I go through these processes and I, I've got you know I've, I've got a goal which is uh, I hope I can realize in the not too distant future of not living in New Zealand any longer and I don't want when that time comes and a few things have to coalesce before that happens but one of them is my mum's death one of them is my job finishing, and the other one is my pussycat passing away. But when those sort of three things, those three vital things happen, I'm in a position to move on. And I don't want to be stressed by having to clean up anything over and above what's necessary when that time comes. So I've been doing it since he died. Mark, thank you so much for talking to me. Oh, you're welcome, Shirley. I've noticed recently that a lot of people are deciding to be cremated or buried without there being any ritual. So I'm hoping that hearing your story will just enable them to reflect on that. Thank you. You've been listening to The Final Curtain, ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. 
podcasts from this series are available online at oar.org.nz and from the accessmedia.nz app. At Death Cafe Dunedin, the conversation continues. You can join that conversation by listening to other New Zealanders tell their stories about death and, if you want to, by sharing yours. Look for Death Cafe Dunedin on Facebook for updates and meeting times. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.